Hello, welcome to the August 8th The Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS and your English language host. This monthly webinar series is dedicated to providing technical talks from internationally recognized educators for listeners around the world. Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations Italia co-hosts in Italian. Paula Torillo from Cordoba, Argentina translates and hosts the Spanish language webinar. Tom Long from Hemingway in China will be hosting in Mandarin. There will be a question and answer period immediately following the presentation. Listeners can submit queries through me, Paula, or Tom. Later, a complete recording of archived webinars, as well as the question and answer session for each, will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentation whilst driving, we have converted the videos into MP3 files that can be downloaded for your device for offline listening. This month, we are pleased to host Dr. Heidi Rassau, an associate professor of ruminant nutrition with UC Davis Veterinary School. After receiving her PhD from UC Davis, she used her extension experience in mathematical models designed to understand nutrient flow in and out of the cow to develop a standalone program that evaluates rations and cow performance. She works at the Veterinary Medicine Teaching and Research Center in Tulare, California, where her areas of research include computer modeling of nutrient metabolism, systems analysis of dairy feed management and production, and developing nutrition monitoring programs. In this presentation, Dr. Rausau joined me on Monday afternoon to record her talk to enable broadcasts twice today at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. She will be with us for the live question period. For our audience, if you have questions during the presentation, please type them in the chat or Q&A window. Heidi will answer them at the end of her presentation. We will now listen to her talk. Today I am talking about managing excretion. And so there's really two different levels that I want to talk to you about this. There's um, how managing excretion, um, how it can be done at the cow level. And um, then I want to talk a little bit also about um, what other concerns there are at the dairy, the whole dairy level. Usually when we talk about um, regulations, around um, being able to manage excretion. We're usually talking about minimizing nutrient deposition in the environment. And so there's differences in how we consider that both at the individual cow level and then at, it's different also at the dairy level. So I am located, um, just to give you an idea of where I am, I'm located in California. Um, really right in the middle of the dairy industry in California. So the Tulare County, Kings County um, area where most of the cows are. And the reason why I want to go over this is because um, these are relatively large dairy herds with large pens of cows. And most of the data, probably more than half of the data I'm going to be talking about is actually from this area of California. And I need to recognize my um, cohorts um, in the Ag and Natural Resources of part of the university, um, the, the Extension Service, who has done a lot of this work, people like Peter Robinson, Frank Mintloner, Dan Meyer, um, the other farm advisors in California, those are Extension Specialists, and then also Marsha Campbell Matthews, who have really done quite a bit of data collection and looking at how um, managing excretion is um, both 
ways to do it at the cow level and then again also at the whole dairy level. Okay, so um, just to give you an idea of the size um, of the size of the herds in California, um, this is just a general view of um, our average herd size in Tulare. We even run a little bit larger than all of California um, with seven, about 1,750 cows per dairy. So our herds are actually fairly large and most of our dairies are actually considered concentrating feeding operations. So we actually don't have a lot of pasture associated with our dairies. Um, we do have herds every once in a while that will take um, their young stock, the heifers that aren't pregnant, um, between weaning and getting them pregnant, and they will actually move them up to um, mountain or hillside pastures and leave them there for a few months to kind of gain size and weight, and it kind of takes some of the stress of feeding um, off the dairy operation to move them up into the pastures. But by and large, we do not really um, have any pasture associated with these dairies. And so what I'm going to talk to you about today, as far as managing excretions goes, is really four areas. And in all these areas, I want to talk the difference between um, how we would manage excretions between the cow, looking at the individual cow, and then also looking at managing excretions for the whole dairy. Um, so I'm going to talk about that first, and then I want to talk about the concept of nutrient balance and what it means at both the cow and dairy levels. Um, and then also talk about efficiency, what numbers are used for efficiency, and um, what efficiency really means. And then finally, um, in the third section, what I want to talk about is strategies. So what strategies can we use for um, managing excretions both at the cow level and then also, again, at the dairy level? So at the cow level, um, when we're usually talking about managing excretion, we're talking about manipulating the physiology and the metabolism of the cow. So this is going to concern things like what's the, what's the requirements of the cow? When we formulate a diet for a cow um, that is actually going to be fed to a pen of cows, are you formulating that diet for the requirements of the average cow in the pen, or are you adding safety factors in to make sure that you can um, meet the requirements of the cows that are the higher producers and the upper, le upper level of the, uh, the distribution of cows that happen to be within that pen. Then also diet. Um, of course, the more, the more digestible a diet is, the less chance um, nutrients coming in are actually going to be excreted. So digestibility is a very important component of this. Um, the concentration of nutrients in the diet what the production level of the cows are because um, producing milk is one way to pull nutrients out and the more milk they produce in theory the less nutrients that are going to be excreted. Also what environment, what the temperatures are for the cow, are they dealing with any stresses, what the health the cows are, the ability of the cows to retain, and the retention is actually related to endogenous sources for some of these nutrients. So I'll be mostly talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but how able or how we are able to maybe measure some of those endogenous sources, um, what time frame we're measuring those things over, is it following one cow through entire lactation, or is it looking at a snapshot of the dairy where we're looking at um, cows at multiple different stages of lactation and trying to figure out how what their excretion is for the entire dairy. And then, of course, um, genetics always plays a role in what the production level of the cow is, the ability to digest, and then, of course, that the ultimate response would be um, what, it, what nutrients are actually excreted. So one of the things that I want to bring up in this, um, especially with a lot of the work that we do on commercial cow herds, is 
that a cow's ability to turn nutrients into product really does vary. So when we're talking about an average cow for a pen, we have to understand that, especially in these large pens, there's a huge distribution of response in milk production um, for what those cows um, actually do produce. And so this is a graph that shows data from actually a relatively old study, and this is weekly milk totals from cows that were milked three times a day. And you can see the red line kind of in the background is actually the average milk production for the pen. But the blue dots represent individual cow milk production. And you can see how much it varies across a group of cows or across the pen. And so the fact that the milk production varies lets us know that dry matter intake also varies a lot. And so how do we actually manage this variation so that we actually, again, capture um, the nutrient excretions not only are able to predict it, but are able to actually manage it across a wide range of uh, nutrients that can actually possibly be excreted by the cows due to the variability. So that's talking about the individual cow. So I want to define what I'm talking about relative to the farm management and managing excretion relative to the farm and why this is so different from managing individual cows. For one thing, the farm, the farm excretion really is dependent on how the dairy is managed. So how is the manure managed? How is it collected? How is it processed? Um, is it recycled and used for bedding? Is it um, dried and used for fertilizer? Is it dried and used for compost? Is it dried and used, uh, sorry, is it uh, go to a lagoon and that lagoon runoff is used for, um, for as a fertilizer to crops? Um, what types of facilities do they have that um, helps them manage the manure? Um, how much are the nutrient imports, in other words, purchase feeds that might be coming in, birthing and culling rates on cows, because that's considered a nutrient export. Um, weather is really important, because how much rain is actually being dumped on the dairy property? Where does the runoff go to? Does it enter the waste stream? Um, and feeding the entire dairy shrinks very important because where does that feed go that you can't account for between the feed that you purchased and the feed that actually gets delivered to the cow? Is it potentially also going to end up in the waste stream or the manure, the manure chain of management or processing? Um, nutrient recycling, um, like I mentioned about, um, are we collecting that manure and using it as a flush or is it going to, um, is it going to be used as a flush and or also then as fertilizer later on? Um, what crops are grown, what's the ability of these crops to actually remove um, nutrients from the dairy property and either be sold or, again, be recycled and fed back to the cows. And then, of course, feed management has a big role in this also as um, we deliver feed to the cows, but what actually ends up with the feed that's actually refused by the cows? Does that get refed somewhere else? What happens to the mold layer on the silage piles? Does it enter the waste stream or does it get fed? And then again, what type of facilities, we talked about that. And even down to what's the grouping of the cows, how are cows grouped, um, how big the pens are, things like this. So these things are all really important concepts when you're talking about um, how the farm actually manages manure relative to how, the, how you're actually going to deal with the cow with her individual excretion. And this diagram really kind of captures that. Um, down looking at the inputs, you've got purchase feed, purchase fertilizer. If you're purchasing uh, a legume, um, such as alfalfa hay, what um, nitrogen is it supplying in the waste stream? And also, of course, rainfall, like I mentioned before. And then we have the outputs that can get exported off farm, which would be animal products. And of course, in the case of dairy, the big one is milk. 
and then also any crops that are sold. And then incorporated in this is the concept of losses, losses that we can't, can't account for. So things like ammonia volatilization, leaching of nitrogen down into the soil and into the water, um, runoff, erosion, all those kinds of things, all of those affect um, how we manage excretion on the farm. And so just like we were talking about variability relative to the individual cow, farm management also incorporates its own um, sense of variability within um, managing the farm also. So what I have here, this is results from a study that we ran probably about five years ago in the Tulare area. And what we were looking at is we just wanted to know what the variability is on feeding a TMR over eight weeks. And so what we did is we collected a sample once a week and then we looked at the, what the coefficient of variation was on the nutrients that were supplied to these cows over the eight-week period of time. And so that top graph shows you the close-up cow group. The next second graph shows you the fresh cows from zero to 21 days in milk. And then the third graph shows you um, the coefficients of variation of different feed ingredients in the high group. So that's 21 to 150 days in milk. We did this for five dairies, and you can see the color coding in the upper right-hand corner for those five different dairies. And you can see the nutrients, the columns of nutrients down at the bottom. So we looked at everything from dry matter to crude protein, all the way over to some common minerals that we would assess in the feed. And what you can get from this is that, yes, there is quite a bit of variation in feed delivered, depending on the dairy, depending on the pen, depending on the diet. And this variation, of course, contributes to variability on cow response. It um, contributes also to um, what the variability we see in the feed management and, uh, of course, also the variability of what possibly might end up in the waste stream, too, because that variability is also going to translate into manure produced by the pen. So this is an example that management really does can introduce a lot of variability. And one of the most important things when you're dealing with anything to do with milk production on a dairy is being able to understand that variability both at the cow level and the whole farm level to really get a good handle on what you're dealing with with the entire dairy and not just looking with an, um, an average of what happens on the dairy. Because variability is one of the things that the more you can reduce it, it seems like the happier the cows are, the more efficient the dairy is, and actually the more profitable the dairy is too. So to just kind of summarize um, my initial section on talking about managing excretion at the cow versus at the whole dairy level, um, what we're going to be talking about, of course, later is feeding strategies to minimize excretion. Um, most of those feeding strategies are actually at the cow level. So you have an understanding that, yes, if you do re reduce um, manure nutrient excretion, yes, probably for the whole dairy you will see a decrease in the manure nutrients um, that are actually end up in the manure waste stream for the entire dairy. Um, the second point I want to get across is that uh, the importance of managing excretion at the cow level really depends on farm management, and that's what we saw with both of those variability graphs. Of course, milk production is very dependent on feeding, and if you have a lot of variability in feeding, you're going to also have a lot of variability in milk production. And so uh, when you have variability with that um, with milk production, again, you're going to also have variability in the excretion of nutrients, too. And again, that's going to be very dependent on farm management, like we discussed. Variability at both the cow and dairy level needs to be considered, especially in large herds, because we really do see more variability in large herds in large pens. 
And that's one of the issues with large dairies is how do we manage the entire pen to actually minimize that variability as much as possible? Because again, that leads to a happy, healthier cows and also leads to a more profitable dairy. So the next section I want to talk about when we're talking about managing excretions is actually the concept of nutrient balance. And nutrient balance is the primary idea behind, at least in California, the regulations that have been handed down to us for dealing with dairy nutrient waste. And so I'll be explaining that a little bit more later on. What I want to talk about first, though, is again at the cow level what nutrient balance means. Um, and by definition, it's pretty much um, what goes in, so feed, water, what goes in, um, what comes out as far as production levels, so um, maybe weight gain, milk production definitely, because that's a large contribution. And then, of course, what comes out of the cow, which would be the manure, and possibly cows, um, carcasses from cows dying, um, any bull calves that are produced, things like that. Those could all be considered output at the cow level. And so this diagram is really just a, shows you a basic nutrient flow for a cow, an individual cow, with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium on the intake, it assumes a 66% uh, digestion of those nutrients. And of course, if you look at this, you can tell right away that if we can increase digestion, we can reduce the amount of nutrients probably coming out in manure. Notice a couple things. Number one, quite a bit of nitrogen comes out that was fed, comes out in manure. And the same is also true for phosphorus. But potassium appears to be a little bit more efficient. Um, and you can also notice, too, on the milk production that um, the rest of it basically is attributed to nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium that ends up in milk. So milk is a, is a major contributor to um, where nutrients go, and that's, of course, considered a useful product because it's profitable. Um, but I want to bring home the point that actually manure um, is a pretty big sink for a lot of those nutrients. If we look at nutrient balance on the whole farm level, um, the default ex um, assumption in regulation really is that what they want is they want to see nutrient import be less than or equal to export. And that's what most of our regulations and um, farm balances that um, are part of the nutrient management plans that our farmers have to submit, that's what they really want to see, uh, what the regulators want to see. So they don't want to see a net buildup of any one nutrient on the farm, and that's why they're looking for import to be less than or equal to export. And so this is, again, a diagram that pretty much just shows you um, some of the inputs and outputs that would be considered on a whole farm. So you can consider inputs to be rain, purchased feed, fertilizer. And if you look at those three, um, you look on that diagram, purchased feed and fertilizer, in this particular example, it's potassium. Notice that they are relatively really large inputs into this cycle. Um, outputs that you can come and see are groundwater leaching, milk, um, also calves, and of course compost from the manure. And of course, on the outputs, like I said before, one of the biggest outputs is milk. So if you can increase milk production of the dairy without increasing nutrients that go into the dairy, you actually get an increase in efficiency and you also get a better nutrient balance across the entire dairy. So one of the things we tried to do um, with the group of um, extension specialists and I was helping on the modeling side is we really wanted to look at nutrient balance on a whole farm and build a model of it to look at um, in the waste stream where these nutrients are going to and 
what kinds of technologies might actually be able to help us manage the waste stream, control where the nutrients go, um, and maybe lead us to some good conclusions on how we can actually manage the waste stream. And so to understand that, we put together this diagram that is not really specific to one dairy. What it actually does is it shows all the possible directions that nutrients can go in the waste stream of a dairy. And so what you see, and of course we were trying to do it for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, so we're really looking at um, trying to calculate what the mass balance is for the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. So we have the import sources, um, which would be manure, silage, um, silage leaching, uh, feed dust, um, and bedding also. And of course that all ends up in the waste stream, which is that manure collection box you see at the very top. So that would be the total nutrients we're starting with. And then you have options on how you pick those up. You have scraping, you can have vacuuming, which not many of our dairies do anymore because of the cost of fuel. And you can also have flushing. And um, from what comes out of those three possibles, from there it can go to a solid separator or it can come out as solids and those solids can be composted. Um, if it goes through a separator, it can go um, to a lagoon or to a pond and that runoff or effluent then um, can be applied to land. And if it's going the compost route, um, it can go to compost and that compost can be applied to land or it can be uh, taken back and used as bedding actually on the dairy. So that just gives you an overview of kind of what we were thinking as far as what are the possible routes for this to go. So what came out of this was we actually then went out and collected data from a dairy, um, a real dairy in California. And what we wanted to do is actually get estimates from measurements of how much nutrients were in each section of the waste stream. So this is the nutrient balance for the dairy. And you can see there's different classifications that kind of help guide you th through the dairy. So this is a real map of the dairy and where manure flows through that dairy. So in the first part, you've got the feed operations, which would be silage, hay, commodities. And sorry, I know the, the writing's kind of small. Um, but it's a really big diagram. <laughs> um, and then down below that, you also have fresh water. So washing if um, through the cows. And if you're not washing the cows, then um, through the, the milking machines. Um, cows drinking and, of course, any water that's used in cow cooling. So those are the basic um, feed operation inputs. And then we have the housing milking um, uses for water and where the nutrients end up there. And we have parlor water, free stalls, manure collections. Um, recycled flush water down below. So I want to explain this diagram a little bit because what we did is we actually collected uh, samples of the water in each parts of these and measured what the nitrogen and phosphorus contents of that water actually was all along. So when you see the O, that's actually what we call the observed. And so that's the numbers that we got by doing actual measurements on the dairy. The P stands for predicted, which is Again, there was a model, a computer model that went along with this. And so the predicted is what the model was predicting. So I'm not gonna be talking about the P's very much. But what I do want you to notice is there are also some S's, like particularly if you look at the screen in box, um, you can see it's observed, predicted, and then it also has an S number. The S is the standard deviation on those estimates. And so by doing this diagram and trying to lay out and follow where these manure nutrients were going through the entire dairy, there's a couple conclusions that we came to through running this model. And so I want to go over just some of the major ones with this. Um, in looking at this, um, one thing that we found was that um, the con contribution of daily manure to the flush, um, and of course this is a freestall dairy, 
um, was relatively small relative to the entire flesh. So what am I talking about? So on this dairy, um, they had a, uh, a solid separator, and then um, the liquid portion, which actually happens to hold most of the nutrients, if you look on this, most of the nitrogen stuff doesn't go to the solids collection after the screen. It actually goes to the liquid portion on the screen. That would go out to a lagoon, and that lagoon water then was used in the flush to flush the free stalls. So what we found with the model was that after running the model for about 30 days, the, the daily contributions of manure in that flesh to the waste stream was actually relatively small. And you, it was kind of asymptotic. So the, so the total amount of nutrients in that flesh were actually stayed fairly constant after about 30 days. So that was the first thing that was really interesting to us is that you actually kind of plateaued on the amount of nutrients that were in the recycled flesh water. The second thing, and I kind of mentioned this already before, was that actually most of the nutrients of the in the waste stream were captured when it went through the screen separator. It was actually captured in the liquid portion, and there weren't really very many nutrients in the solids portion. So this is important because what ends up happening in the lagoons is you end up with most of the nitrogen and phosphorus going out to the lagoon. And of course, there's a lot of aerobic, um, anaerobic fermentation by bacteria in that lagoon, and that ends up stratifying. So you end up with a sludge layer down at the bottom that if you don't have mixing in the lagoon kind of stays there. And then you, just like you have stratification in the rumen of a cow, you also would have stratification in the lagoon. So what nutrients you found and the relative amounts of microbial degradation of those, of those nutrients in the lagoon was different for how far down you go. This is important because if you want to sample lagoon water because you're going to use it for manure application, depending on what layer or how far down you go on the lagoon, you're going to get very drastically different results in what nutrients are actually present in the lagoon. So this is an important thing to understand also. And probably the third thing that's really, really important is that when you look at the S numbers here for a lot of these boxes, what you find is the standard deviations of these O values, the observed values, or what we measured, the standard deviations are actually very, very high. And in some cases, they are as high as the number that we're trying to actually predict. So what does this mean? This means that it's really difficult to go out on a dairy and actually get a good estimate of what the nutrient flow is through that dairy. Um, this means that mass balances of dairies, um, if you're doing from this approach, it's very error prone. And it also means that if you're trying to use a model like this to identify critical control points for where you want to either measure or manage the manure, you can't do it using this method because the standard deviations are so high, you can't really trust the averages that you get. And this is part of my continuing kind of flow through this talk is that variability is really important and you can't just take an average value for a lot of these things because especially at the whole farm level there is a lot of variability on any one of these measurements that you make so you really need to estimate the variability to know how good your averages are okay so if we look at another um, comparison looking at um, cow this time looking at cow um, manure excretion versus the dairy balance excretion so I have cow in the left-hand column and I have farm in the right-hand column. And remember with cow, when we're talking about balance, we're talking about 
um, inputs and then the outputs. I'm only considering manure and milk and the outputs here. And then on the farm, when we're talking about balance, we're talking about um, imports being uh, less than or equal to exports, or in another way of putting it, in minus out has to be less than or equal to zero. And so these numbers on the cow side, of course, are in kilograms. The numbers on the farm side um, are in, um, and I, this is only on the whole farm side, we're only considering nitrogen in tons per year. And so on the cow side, if you assume a 17% crude protein diet, it shows the nitrogen balance, um, an estimated nitrogen balance, um, and this is from published literature, and the references are down at the bottom of the slide, um, that the input estimated for nitrogen was 0.64 kilograms, the manure output was estimated to be 0.36 kilograms, and the milk output was estimated to be 0.16 kilogram, um, kilograms of nitrogen. And so that actually has a positive balance that is a net input into the system of 0.12 uh, kilograms. And so all these further on down read pretty much the same way in the cow column. You've got phosphorus um, balance. That's a positive balance. It's actually very, very small. It's almost zero, so that would be good. And the potassium balance, you can look at that for the cow um, for this particular estimate. It's also relatively small and pretty close to zero. Um, if you look at the farm side, um, you can see that uh, we can look at the inputs, um, which are at the top, and that's purchased feed, purchased fertilizer, bedding. And I have a question mark by bedding because, of course, some of our dairies do use um, manure as bedding, um, composted manure as bedding, and some of them actually bring in sand. And that's pretty much, some will use almond holes, but on a very, very, excuse me, almond shells, but on a very limited basis. It's mostly sand and um, sand or manure. Um, so that, that could be an input or maybe a recycled um, nutrient input uh, if they use uh, manure solids as bedding. And of course, um, then legume fixation, um, that can also be considered an input because that's a contribution if you're growing alfalfa, contribution of nitrogen to the soil. Um, of the farm, and that, if you sum all those up, the inputs are um, 118.5 uh, tons of nitrogen per year. What I want to, what I really want to point out on the inputs is that of all these inputs, of course, the biggest ones are purchase feed, and um, also if you buy fertilizer, that's also an incredibly, that's really most of the inputs to this nitrogen balance here for the whole farm. If we look at outputs, you've got milk, 26.4 uh, tons of nitrogen per year. Um, the herds, this would be uh, body weight. Um, this would be cold cows. Um, if there's any crops sold, a lot of times we don't, our dairies don't sell any crops really. Um, any of the crops, they grow are forage crops, and they are actually refed to the cows. And then down at the bottom, you sum up the outputs, and you can see, of course, the major contributor to outputs is also milk. And it's actually got a fairly large positive balance across um, the in versus the out of 90.2 tons of nitrogen per year. And that's about 76% of what the inputs are. So what I really want to um, show from this is that both the cow and the farm in general are usually in positive balance. Um, and on the, on the farm side, the biggest contributors to inputs is actually feed and fertilizer. And the biggest export is actually milk. So if there's any way that the dairy can actually limit the amount of feed it purchases and the amount of fertilizer it purchases and then increase its milk production at the same time, it can actually improve its balance to hopefully be closer to zero. 
One of the things I want to bring up, though, is really the concept of can zero balance really be possible, and can you even get to the point where your outputs are actually less than what your inputs are? So let's go on with this. And so in summary for the nutrient balance section, um, nutrient balance for both the cow and the dairy is really a function of what goes in, what stays, and what comes out. And of course, in with that, when you're considering nutrient balance, you really need to consider not just the averages, but have estimations of the variability associated with each one of those. Because that's really, they say the devils are in the details and the variability is really the details. Uh, any way to minimize the variability so that you have good estimates um, is really a priority in this area and really all of, all of the area of dairy management. Um, the second point is to really avoid feeding excess. And again, because the largest inputs were feeding and fertilizer, to get to a better nutrient balance, um, the, the best thing that can be done is to minimize inputs. And then finally, um, from the modeling that we did on the dairy, um, right now, I think estimating critical control points in nutrient flow is probably just not possible because we really have an inability to actually measure, get good estimates of what the um, nutrient flow is on an actual dairy. It's very hard to measure this due to the variability that we see on dairies. So what I want to do now is talk about the next section. So we've talked about nutrient balance and what the in versus out is um, for the cow and the dairy. Of course, cows are hardly ever in nutrient balance on an individual basis, um, but there's cows in lots of different stages of lactation that contribute to what the nutrient balance is of the whole dairy. And part of what actually the numbers that you get for nutrient balance is dependent on how efficient both the cow and the dairy actually are. So the next section I want to talk about is efficiency and how efficiency contributes to managing excretions or what nutrients you find in the waste stream. So um, some of the efficiency guidelines that are being um, in place and used right now are number one, the nitrogen use efficiency. So nitrogen uh, in, in, with the National Resource Conservation Service in the United States, um, if nitrogen use efficiency for an entire dairy is less than 30%, um, they will actually, there's incentives out there to help them get below 30% for the nitrogen use efficiency. And nitrogen use efficiency is defined as the nitrogen in milk for the entire dairy divided by the nitrogen in feed. So you can see nitrogen use um, efficiency is really defined by what an individual cow is doing. In theory, there shouldn't be much management attached to that, but what really matters is how they're actually measuring the nitrogen in feed. Are they looking at purchased feed? Probably not, because that can be a very difficult thing to track on a dairy, but it is relatively easy to see what, what nutrients are actually being delivered to the cows. It may not be what they're actually eating, but it's easy to actually tell what the nutrients are that are being delivered to cows. And so that ratio may actually be missing some of the whole farm contributions of nutrients to the waste stream, um, but because it does consider nitrogen in milk, and of course milk production is a, um, is a big contributor to net export of nutrients off farm, it is capturing that in the, in the numerator. Um, so the focus, of course, is to either increase milk by getting to get a good nitrogen use efficiency to increase milk or to decrease dietary nitrogen. Um, and so that, that what this ratio really tells you is what the milk nitrogen efficiency actually is. Another um, term that people use a lot for uh, efficiency is called feed conversion efficiency. 
And the goal is usually to have a feed conversion efficiency of 1.6 or above. And that's just the ratio of kilograms milk to kilograms dry matter intake. So it's similar to the nitrogen use efficiency. You're just looking at it on a total input-out um, basis um, with uh, kilograms milk being the output and kilograms dry matter intake being the input. Okay. So if we talk about efficiency on the, with the cow um, relative to the farm, and this is just considering it on a nitrogen um, basis, nitrogen and phosphorus basis for the farm. Um, and this is really the ratio of um, the output or milk relative to the input or nutrient input um, in the diet. Um, this is looking at the cow. We can see that it's a 16% crude protein diet that we're estimating this off of. And in the cow, it's showing um, the nitrogen and manure about 68 to 70% of that nitrogen that goes into the cow um, actually ends up in the, um, uh, sorry, it's, it's about a 68 to 70% efficiency of nitrogen and manure relative to the 60% crude protein diet that's fed. Um, the milk efficiency is about half of what the nitrogen in manure efficiency is, and if you'll notice, there's also an additional line of urea plus ammonia that's 31 to 34 percent. That urea plus ammonia is actually considered in that upper line of nitrogen and manure. So in the nitrogen and manure um, efficiency number, it's actually half of that is really urea and ammonia. And this is important to understand, too, is that manure is made up of feces and urine, and the relative sources for each one of those are different, and the impact of what happens to nitrogen and manure in particular um, is very dependent on what proportion of that is urea and what proportion of that is from uh, organic sources or from feces. Um, if we look at the farm efficiency, the overall farm efficiency for um, input output and over input for nitrogen is actually about 36%. So while the cow is a much higher efficiency, you can see that the farm is only actually about half the efficiency um, of uh, that getting that nitrogen and manure of what the cow is, and that's just due to the fact that there's a lot of other processes that are happening on the whole farm. And the same is true for phosphorus. You can see that um, Phosphorus capture in manure is actually very poor, and a lot of phosphorus ends up in milk. And for potassium, um, a lot of potassium actually ends up in manure, and very little potassium ends up in milk. Um, whereas the farm actually does, um, is not great, uh, as good with nitrogen, I'm sorry, it's not as good at phosphorus as it is with nitrogen. Um, I also have some estimates for the cow, for calcium, magnesium, and sodium. But the basic point that I want to get across here is that um, for the farm, the efficiency is actually much lower. Um, this is due to having unproductive stock like heifers that aren't producing any milk. Therefore, the, that drives the efficiency of the farm down. Um, there's also a greater potential to add to the waste stream when you consider the entire farm because there's things like loading a mixer wagon. If there's a powdered mineral that's used and it's a windy day, that mineral is going to um, pretty much go all over the place and may not actually make it into the diet. Um, there can also be environmental losses due to um, volatilization of nitrogen and how the, um, the urine and the feces mix to actually get the manure in that process. You might get quite a bit of nitrogen leaving for volatilization. So um, I just wanted to bring up this quote because this is kind of the quote that um, 
I consider that really is what brought the whole term of precision feeding into the whole um, managing excretion and looking at the waste stream kind of point of view. Um, the properly formulated rations that precisely meet the cow's requirements for milk production, maintenance, and gestation will also minimize excessive nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium excretion and manure and urine. And this is really true, of course, on the, when you're considering just the individual cow. But my question is, when you think about what happens on the entire dairy, yes, the cow is a major contributing contributor and precision feeding makes sense for the cow, but what really needs to be considered is what's the management dairy and how much does each cow contribute to the waste stream on the entire dairy? Um, because management can actually lead to quite a bit of additional waste, and if it's good management, it can actually minimize the additional waste that can end up in the waste stream. And so when you're considering managing excretion, you need to consider managing excretion, again, at both the cow level and at the whole dairy level, because it's really two different management strategies, and it's two almost completely different ways of um, looking at the waste stream. We make some of these differences, um, how many different rations are fed on a dairy, um, cow groupings, how cows are grouped together, are you grouping them by production level, which means that the um, cows that have similar requirements are grouped together. Um, and that's the advantage of multiple rations, is it gives you a chance for more precision feeding of individual groups, um, that you actually minimize the excess nutrients that are going into the cows, so you minimize the waste that's coming off of them. Um, of course, monitoring dry matter intake is incredibly important. Um, minimizing crude protein inputs, um, reformulating constantly for forage quality, all, all the things on this list are things that can help um, minimize uh, nutrients that are going out in the waste stream, including um, maximizing milk production and going for maximum nitrogen efficiency down at the bottom. So that leads me right into the next section and the final section, which is actually um, different strategies that can be employed uh, for managing excretion. So there's two basic um, topics that I want to talk to as far as strategy is concerned. I want to talk about um, the thought of, up to this point, we've really been talking about manure as minimizing the nutrients that end up in manure, um, not really considering that manure might actually have a value to it and that it could be used as fertilizer. Um, and I'm going to explain a little bit more about that coming up. The secondary um, area that I want to talk then is strategies relative to feeding cows and how feeding cows can actually minimize uh, nutrients going into the waste stream. So first off, I want to talk about um, what if we actually consider instead of minimizing nutrients that end up into manure, but actually considering that those nutrients have a value in manure and can we feed a cow so that that manure is actually more valuable as fertilizer? One of the biggest inhibitors to this is the fact that we get volatilization. And, um, and that when I'm talking about volatilization, I mean volatilization of nitrogen. So nitrogen release because the urea in urine, when it mixes with the environment, particularly feces, which has a lot of urease enzymes in it, that actually changes the urea and it, it allows the nitrogen to volatilize and leave into the atmosphere. So it does two things. It, it reduces the nitrogen content um, of manure um, in the waste stream. And actually the funny thing is a lot of our, um, a lot of our manure handling uh, 
technology has actually been based on trying to actually volatilize nitrogen, and it seems like we've done things to actually increase the disappearance of nitrogen into the atmosphere. Um, the second thing is that that release of nitrogen into the atmosphere is not necessarily a good, excuse me, a good thing for the atmosphere. And so um, what we've done more recently is we've been trying to think about manure um, actually as a, uh, a commodity, as something that's important, and try to find ways that we can actually capture that nitrogen and keep it in manure so that it can be a better fertilizer. Um, this really came home when we got the first increase in um, fuel prices, because along with the increase in fuel prices, um, fertilizer prices, so commercial fertilizer prices also went up because the two are actually kind of intertwined. And what we saw is there was a sudden interest in both farmers and dairy farmers in actually using more manure as fertilizer, but what they found is that the proportions of nutrients supplied by manure were really inadequate um, to, to use as the complete fertilizer for a particular crop. And so that's more what I'm going to talk about. Um, down below this list is really things that um, that control volatilization or have an influence on volatilization of nitrogen. So of course, um, temperature, air, pH. Um, I talked about the mixing of ammonia and urea with uh, manure or with feces, excuse me, for um, increasing volatilization and releasing that nitrogen to the atmosphere. Um, one of the interesting things is, uh, of course, cows, because they're herbivores, they're generally naturally, uh, their excretions are basic. Um, in a basic kind of environment, you actually get an increase in volatilization. And if you have um, urea and feces mixing in more of an acid type of environment, it will actually inhibit the ureases and you will end up trapping more of the nitrogen. So that's one thing that some people are looking at is manure additives that actually can create more of an acidic environment to actually trap the excess of the nitrogen that otherwise would have all wiped off. Um, and of course, limiting this will be better and um, a lot of volatilization, like I said before, is dependent on facilities and handling it. In the past, we have really tried to, it seems like, almost increase the volatilization. So um, this is just a comparison of two of the common facilities that we have um, in California. Uh, most of our dairies seem to either be freestall types, and in general, freestalls usually utilize a flush. Um, or multiple flushes within a day, and then that flush goes out to a lagoon. This system tends to volatilize around 20 to 35% of the nitrogen um, that ends up in the manure waste stream. And this, this of course, is just an estimate because, again, this is something that's very hard to measure. Um, on average, this volatilization number probably ends up being closer to 35% or towards the upper end rather than the lower end. Um, the second type of facilities we mainly have is what's called, what's called a dry lot dairy. So these are dairies that um, have cement um, cement pads with, um, free, not freestyles, but cement pads with lockups that are up above them, and they're usually not sheltered from the weather. And then they'll be in a dirt pen behind that, and the dirt pen will have shade structures out in it. Um, some of these dry lots actually do employ flushes around the feeding area to wash the manure out of that area. But in general, um, dry lots, the cows spend most of their time out on a dirt lot. And what's interesting about that is when they're out on a dirt lot, they tend to um, pee and poop um, in different areas. So you don't always see the mixing of urine and feces, and it actually um, serves to kind of sequester 
um, and decrease the amount of nitrogen that's volatilized. Of course, a lot of this is dependent on how often those pens are groomed, how um, if, if solids might be collected if they're doing a flush in addition to that, and if they're bringing those solids back and spreading them around the pen. So what we see here is about a range uh, in volatilization numbers of about 2 to 37 percent, with actually the average being right around 12 percent. So surprisingly, the dry luck has a tendency to be um, quite a bit better than the freestyle in general on being able to capture nitrogen um, and decrease volatilization out into the atmosphere. So when we look at what's the potential of manure to be fertilizer, one of the things that's really important to know is, of course, um, organic uh, nitrogen supply in the manure versus inorganic nitrogen supply. Um, and so why is that important? Well, the organic manure um, is not as available when it's applied to soil as the inorganic nitrogen is. So inorganic nitrogen would be things like urea um, that actually has a very high potential of being volatilized. And that, if you applied that to the plant, um, that would be almost immediately available for the plant to use actually as fertilizer. The problem with organic is that it tends to, when it's applied, it just sits there in the soil. And it actually has to be um, fermented or it has to be metabolized by microbes within the soil and has to be um, in order to break it down to get it to the point where the microbes can actually use it um, and take it more into more inorganic forms where the plants can actually use it and be available. So what ends up happening is if you apply organic fertilizer, um, so a lot of the nitrogen that's actually in feces is or in the organic form, um, if you apply that, that organic nitrogen tied up in that feces will not actually be available for the plant to use for probably about three to five years after it was actually applied. So keeping that in mind, that, that's really important to understand because the relative amounts of organic versus um, organic nitrogen, um, if you're going to use it as fertilizer, um, if you have more organic you may be calculating total nitrogen applied, but a lot of that nitrogen is not actually going to be available immediately to the plant. Now, if you're going to use organic sources of nitrogen and keep on applying them, in probably about three to five years, the amount of organic that you're applying will probably be equal to the amount of organic that's actually been degraded over time and is now available to plants. So you can kind of reach an equilibrium between the two. But if you're just starting up to use this as fertilizer, um, this can actually really decrease your yield. And so what this is, is this is um, numbers from a study where people looked at, um, actually it's actually from Van Vliet et al. at um, 2007, where they looked at crude protein percent in the diet that was fed, um, and they looked at, as a percentage of dry matter in the feces, they looked at amount of carbon, and they looked at um, the amount of inorganic nitrogen in those feces, and then organic nitrogen. And so if you look at this, um, you can see that as the amount of crude protein in the diet decreases, so from top to bottom, really there isn't a whole lot of change in carbon content um, in the feces. What you do see, though, is a very small proportion of those feces is actually inorganic nitrogen, and that's probably due to the fact that a lot of it was lost in volatilization and collection. But there's actually relatively quite a bit more of organic nitrogen in this in the feces, and the numbers 
and content for both inorganic nitrogen and organic nitrogen don't really seem to be related to the actual crude protein in the diet that was fed. Those numbers seem to be almost constant. So, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you some more data from this, but this leads us to believe that you might actually not be able to predict um, or it makes it more difficult to actually feed based on crude protein level of the diet to actually get a specific proportion of nitrogen um, that's in the organic or the inorganic form in feces. And this is just a diagram that shows you um, what happens with organic versus um, inorganic nitrogen that um, in different types of nitrogen that we apply in the inorganic, it's usually, like I said, it's urea, it might be nitrates, things like that. Nitrates has a tendency to actually go with water in the soil, and so nitrates are more likely to leach through and contaminate the water supply. Um, urea, again, has a great chance to be volatilized even before it makes it onto being applied. And then the organic really has to go through um, quite a bit of um, degradation by bacteria um, and mineralization by bacteria in order to actually be available to plants. So again, this is data that was collected in California. This is showing um, field um, on 11 different dairies um, with different cropping patterns. It's showing you um, the amount of nitrogen that was input and then the amount of nitrogen that was removed through um, actual harvest of the crop. And my main point here um, is that with different, different dairies, different fields, um, the yields um, and the, the amount input don't really seem to be related. Um, there's a lot of variability in this entire system. Um, I actually went through and calculated what the relative, um, the relative yield was, so the removal relative to the amount input, and the range of numbers that you get across all of these, um, all of these different um, dairies and varieties of crops ranges from about 1.1 to 2.57. So um, this is all dependent on how you apply it, what the soil um, condition is, because you need to have um, good, healthy soil with a healthy, active microbial population in order to be able to use manure as fertilizer. Um, and the, we don't really know um, for this particular table what the actual um, nitrogen content relative to how much is organic and how much is inorganic. And if the inorganic is relatively low and this is the first time it's being applied, the plant just may not have enough nitrogen to really have high yields. And so this is another study um, that shows, on the previous one, it was just the first application on these fields, um, and it showed you relative yields of nitrogen um, for the nitrogen input onto it as manure. Um, this shows repeat applications actually on the same field. So um, we have it over two, um, two different sets, two different fields, multiple years. So we have 2001 through 2004 um, with a corn crop, and we have 2003, sorry, 2002 through 2004 with a cereal crop. And it actually breaks down the applied nitrogen into the nitrate, um, the, um, the urea forms, and then, of course, um, other organic nitrogen um, that was applied. And so the nitrate actually was not, um, that was commercial fertilizer that wasn't actually from the manure applied. 
Um, when we look at the manure applied, that was mostly the urea, which is the second, uh, or let me see, it's actually the fourth column in, and the organic N, which is actually from manure sources. And so that total number corresponds to all three columns, but you need to look at the manure applied relative to the removal to really understand, so in other words, removal is harvest, to really understand. And so this was designed to look at and try to apply the amount of nitrogen to be about equal to the amount removed. And you can see in some cases they did really well, and in other cases they didn't do so well. So it's, that's, that contributes to the hard, how hard it is actually to estimate these things. Uh, in other words, the amount of urea nitrogen and the amount of organic nitrogen in feces, and from that actually look at what the total is and what the total removed is. Um, one of the things, and, and then of course on the right-hand side of this table, it shows you the same thing applied and removed for both phosphorus and potassium. And one of the things you can see from the applied and removed, particularly under potassium, is that potassium, when you apply it relative to um, manure, is potassium ended up being way over applied. So the potassium content of this manure was too high, really, for what the plant needed. Um, and again, uh, when I talked about stratification in the lagoon, this is lagoon water application. And so depending on where you, how far down you go to actually look at the nutrient content of the lagoon, you can end up with really widely variable nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium application because it's very difficult to get a good assessment of how much of that is in the, in the lagoon because the lagoon is not uniform all the way down. The other thing to comment on is this doesn't include sludge, which if you're using lagoon water as fertilizer, eventually you have to empty out the lagoon all the way and you have to collect the sludge that is on the bottom. And in general, at least in California, that sludge usually also being, also is applied as manure. And um, sludge has a tendency, <coughs> excuse me, to be very, very high in phosphorus, which will also, um, you can actually end up over applying phosphorus for what um, the crop output ends up being. So really what this is telling you is that Using manure um, without being able, it's very difficult to manage manure so that you actually get good fertilizer and you can actually meet the requirements of the crop um, to get good yields and then pull most of those nutrients off as crop yield. Um, another point I want to make is um, it's not only important when you need to empty the lagoon and to know what nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium you would actually be using from the lagoon, but these fertilize, using the lagoon to fertilize, you need to pay attention to also the timing of what the application is. So this is just showing um, two different cropping systems. In California, we have the unique opportunity to be able to double crop and sometimes even triple crop. And so that top, um, the top graph shows you a double crop system where they're using winter forage and corn silage. So the green is the winter forage and the yellow is the corn silage. And the bottom one is a triple crop where you're using an early winter forage, then corn silage in yellow, and then Sudan silage um, in the fall. And so this is just showing the nutrient requirements for each crop. And this is one of the reasons why corn silage is really grown widely in California is because it is actually a great remover of nutrients because it has a lot of requirements for nutrients. So if we look at um, where the nitrogen that we apply um, through manure actually goes, um, this was a study that was um, a little table or estimate that was done 
based on some numbers from um, the California, um, it was a report that was um, developed by the Extension Service in California to kind of talk about things about using manure actually as fertilizer and what things need to be considered. And the point of this is um, to just notice that when we try to use manure as fertilizer, um, where does a lot of that nitrogen end up going? So if we look at, at the top, these are just some guidelines that were used to develop the numbers at the bottom. So we assume nitrogen input to the crops is about 140 to 165% of what's actually removed. Um, we assume that wet manure is about 75% um, ammonia nitrogen. Um, and leaching, um, about 10 to 15% of that total applied nitrogen up on the top is actually going to be leached um, into the soil and um, then falling potentially into the water. So if we use those estimates, um, that results in crop removal, um, the crop actually removing about 400 to 600 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. Um, the requirements of that crop were actually 560 to 990 pounds of nitrogen per acre per year. And one of the major um, contributors to that, if we take that 10 to 15% of applied nitrogen rule, that means that about um, 55 to 150 pounds per year of nitrogen is actually lost to leaching. And if you calculate the amount of irrigation water that's applied to do this, um, you end up with about 10 to 55% milligrams per liter of nitrogen concentration actually in that water. And just to give you an idea of uh, how much nitrogen actually ends up being leached um, is the limit for actual drinking water for humans is actually 10 milligrams per liter. So it means that, you know, we this, this amount of nitrogen that we lose to leaching is not trivial. And again, it needs to be managed, especially if you're going to do continuous applications of manure to fields. Okay, so that was talking a little bit about strategies. If you wanted to use manure um, and actually consider that manure has value, um, things to consider um, when using manure actually as fertilizer, looking at organic versus inorganic sources of nitrogen from within manure. So now what I want to talk about is actually strategies focusing more on feeding cows. And these are four common strategies that are put out there to actually manage um, individual cow excretion, um, particularly of nitrogen. Um, so the first one I'm going to talk about is low-protein diets. The second one is trying to manage um, nitrogen recycling within the cow and take full advantage of nitrogen recycling within the cow. The third one is um, feeding diets that are balanced for amino acids. So this is usually based on the limiting amino acid theory. And the fourth one I'm going to talk about is the use of RDP and RUP in formulating diets to try to partition nitrogen in the appropriate direction for what you're trying to, to do. If you're trying to increase microbial yield, if you're trying to, or if you're trying to change proportions of um, organic and inorganic nitrogen um, in manure that's produced. So just um, kind of as a base to get started with this, this is data, again, from another paper. Um, it's down in the lower right-hand corner from Nenichanel 2005. And this is just looking. Um, and heifers, calves, and cows looking at nitrogen and phosphorus. So on the horizontal axis, we have um, crude protein intake or phosphorus intake. And then um, we have um, the amount of nitrogen or phosphorus excreted. And this is to get across the point that the more you feed of nitrogen or the more you feed of phosphorus, 
the more um, that ends up getting excreted. Just to keep in mind as a general rule of thumb as we talk about these things. So if we first talk about low protein diets, so this is one of the probably one of the first things that was come out about um, being able to control nitrogen coming out in manure is to just feed a lower protein diet. And the important thing to do is to make sure that if you're going to feed a low protein diet, don't have it impacting the amount of milk produced. Because if you remember back to the beginning when I was talking about um, the waste stream, that um, one of the important ways to improve balance is to actually maximize your milk production with the minimal amount of input of protein into the cow. And so this is just um, a study, another study where they measured um, increasing crude protein levels in the diet. So we go from 13.5 crude protein percent up to 19.4 crude protein percent. And what we're looking at is where that protein ends up in kilograms per day. So the blue bars represent um, milk lactose production, just to give you a gauge of what happens to milk volume produced. And then the, um, the kind of orangey purple orange color is actually milk protein that ends up in milk. So what you can see for these, this particular trial, these particular diets, feeding more protein did not really impact milk production. Or feeding less protein, if you consider it the other way, did not impact milk production. But if we look at this in a little more detail, um, again, with the same range of diets on the horizontal axis, uh, axis, you can see that um, if we look at how that nitrogen is actually excreted, you can see that total nitrogen excreted, of course, goes up with increasing crude protein in the diet. And along with that, urinary nitrogen also increases with increasing crude protein in the diet. But fecal nitrogen stays about the same. We do have one um, at 15 percent, it seems like we get a little blip um, or we get a little decrease in um, fecal nitrogen. But whereas the previous slide told us that there was very little impact on milk production with um, decreasing crude protein in diets, um, you can see that actually how that nitrogen is excreted changes um, quite a bit with how much nitrogen is actually fed to the cow. So if we talk about low-protein diets as a strategy, why would this work? Why do we think this works? Well, it's the whole idea of minimizing the nitrogen in should actually minimize the nitrogen out, and it does, as you can see from the previous slide. Um, along with minimizing the amount in and minimizing the amount out, since you, the amount of nitrogen in urine seems to be the most one of the most responsive areas, um, if you decrease the amount of protein fed, that will also decrease the amount volatilized since that urinary nitrogen is primarily the nitrogen that gets volatilized. This is going to improve balance and increase the efficiency of nitrogen across the cow. Why might it not work as far as being able to reduce um, nitrogen or control nitrogen in the, in the waste stream? Well, if you're going to consider manure um, and you really want to be able to manipulate manure so it actually makes a better fertilizer, um, you may not want to um, you may want to actually control volatilization, try to capture more of that nitrogen, and may actually want a higher nitrogen content in the fertilizer. Because one of the things when we were talking about using manure for fertilizer is that the nitrogen content of manure tends to be way too low for to get good crop yields out of it. So you either have to try to recapture more of that nitrogen in the manure if you're going to use it for fertilizer, or you need to supply an outside source of nitrogen 
to supply that nitrogen to those crops. So actually the phosphorus and potassium content of manure is much better for fertilizer, but if you try to apply enough manure to meet the nitrogen content, you're gonna end up way over fertilizing for phosphorus and potassium. The other um, reasons why it might not more work is um, if you are actually feeding more protein, um, you're going to increase the organic nitrogen, and of course that's going to increase volatilization. You're gonna lose more nitrogen um, through volatilization, and you won't be able to use the manure as quite as well for nitrogen fertilizer. Um, they, cows, the third one, cow's ability to recycle limited urea, excuse me, <laughs> cow's ability to recycle urea is actually somewhat limited. Um, the pool, the circulating pool of urea is only, can only get to be about a certain size. So as you feed more and more nitrogen, once that recycling, that urea recycling has reached its maximum pool size, and you can see it in the, in the previous graphs, that excess urea is just going to go and be excreted. Um, and so really what we want to find is that sweet spot where you're maximizing your recycling of urea and that excess urea, um, that, excuse me, that, that excess nitrogen is not going in urea that's going to be excreted. Um, and in, in past, that's been set up to be about 15%, and that's been kind of the guideline for protein content of a diet. Um, in the long run, Minimizing the protein in diets may actually end up impacting maximum milk production. And where we see this is actually in large herds. Feeding a 15% crow protein diet when you have a pen that's about 300 cows in size, um, you have to make sure that that diet is extremely uniform and that all cows have equal access to that diet because the potential for variability, once again, in a really large pen means that it's highly likely um, that if you're not feeding a safety factor with a large pen like that, that you actually, some cows will not get enough um, protein in their diet and that will actually impact their milk production. So our second idea was um, trying to maximize your recycling. And of course, I talked about it a little bit in the previous chart, but what I wanted to do is show you um, two different diagrams that show um, low nitrogen intake versus high nitrogen intake. And this is what I was talking about with that urea pool, which is really um, where urea is actually recycled out of. Under low nitrogen intake, you actually see a better efficiency um, of, your, of urea recycling, and much less um, of that urea is going to spill over and be excreted into urine. But as you increase protein, um, you're actually going to um, increase, not necessarily swell the urea pool and increase recycling. What's actually going to happen is that excess nitrogen is going to come off as urea and be excreted as urine. The way that we monitor this, of course, is one of the best ways is to actually look at milk urea nitrogen. There's already been some guidelines set up for looking at milk urea nitrogen to tell what's going on with the diet and are you meeting the nitrogen needs of the rumen. Um, and limiting the amount of potential urea that might um, overflow and, and go out into, your, out into urine. So the guidelines pretty much are that um, you don't want milk urea nitrogen to be above 18 milligrams per deciliter, and you really don't want milk urea nitrogen to be below 12 milligrams per deciliter. And the sweet spot seems to be somewhere around 14 to 15 milligrams per deciliter. Um, and so usually if you're using mercury and nitrogen to assess this, that's what you're looking for, somewhere around 14, 15 um, milligrams per deciliter. 
So the third strategy um, to manipulate uh, urea, excuse me, manipulate nitrogen in manure or actually um, decrease nitrogen in manure would be to actually make sure that you are feeding so that there's no limiting amino acids. And so um, this graph shows you, is basically uh, gives you an example of a limiting amino acid actually affecting utilization of another amino acid. So here, um, the limiting amino acid in this graph is actually sulfur amino acids. And um, what we're looking at is we're seeing that as we increase the amount of sulfur amino acids, which is the limiting amino acid, as we increase it, lysine degradation actually goes down. So what you're seeing is an increase in utilization of lysine because you're feeding more of the limiting amino acid sulfur, uh, the, sulfur the category of the sulfur amino acids. And then you hit a point where lysine degradation, um, you're getting maximal uh, utilization of lysine degradation for the amount of sulfur amino acids you've added. And so you don't really see any additional degradation of of lysine, and what you actually see is that as you add more and more sulfur amino acids, um, lysine plateaus, so sulfur amino acids are no longer limiting, somewhere around between um, 0.5 to 0.55 um, moles of sulfur amino acids per day. And so this is just illustrating that um, why you want to consider amino acid balance is because when there is a limiting amino acid that's, that's very limiting, um, it actually decreases the – sorry, it increases the degradation of other amino acids that are not being fully utilized because of this one limiting amino acid. That's going to increase um, degradation of amino acids. It's going to increase the amount of nitrogen that comes off, increases that nitrogen going to urine, and then again be excreted as um, urea, which then has the potential for volatilization. And so this is one strategy is to actually balance diets for amino acids. So this is actually um, a simulation using a computer model that shows um, what happens um, in that same example with the addition of lysine, which in this particular example is the limiting amino acid, and it shows you that milk production increases drastically from 32, well, not drastically, but it increases pretty well, from 32.3 kilograms to 34.8 kilograms. It shows that there's an increase in milk protein. Um, but what's interesting um, is it also shows that there's a slight increase in nitrogen and feces, nitrogen in urine, um, nitrogen in milk, um, and then um, the amount also of um, lysine in milk as it's been increased. And so this is just another example showing the impact of limiting amino acids. So in the limiting amino acids, why this concept would actually work? Well, if you meet, again, if you meet the amino acid requirement, you're going to minimize the breakdown of other amino acids, which means that the nitrogen from those other amino acids won't be um, excreted in urine, and that won't be increasing the amount of nitrogen that would go into the waste stream. Why this possibly wouldn't work is because it's really hard to know what amino acids are limiting and exactly how much is limiting. Um, there's been a lot of um, experiments done, and um, there's a lot of papers published in, in Journal of Dairy Science and other journals that show that what they thought was the limiting amino acid ended up not really being the limiting amino acid, and that the addition of that limiting amino acid really had no impact um, on, on production of the cow, and that particular amino acid actually ended up being excreted. 
Um, another reason I don't have this down actually on the list, but there are some um, people out there that don't think that the limiting amino acid theory is actually valid anymore and that we need to think of limiting amino acids more in groups and think of it more as a barrel and stave kind of model. And I'm not going to go much into that, but if you're interested, that might be something you may want to look at is um, some of that other literature that actually thinks that there's actually a different way. There's a different reason for why amino acids are actually degraded and that the idea of a requirement may be um, a little bit antiquated. So if you're going to use this limited amino acid idea, it's really important to have a good knowledge of the amino acid profiles of feed um, and know what amino acids are needed for what important metabolic, metabolic cow processes you, you have that you're trying to maximize, like milk production, or maybe um, what, uh, microbial production. Um, it's important, of course, to be able to really have a good way of um, estimating which amino acid is limiting um, and to determine just how limiting it is. So, of course, requirements really in real life are not static and requirements have a tendency to increase with the amount of production. And this is one place, again, where knowing what the variability in production of your cows are so that you can estimate what the variability um, in amino acid requirements are can, across your pen can be extremely important. Um, and of course, one of the most important things to know is also keeping track of what other amino acids are being fed in excess and being able to minimize those or match them to your limiting amino acid. Um, and then of course, some other things that are concerned down there at the bottom with um, is your limiting amino acid really available to the cow and not necessarily to the rumen? And um, are you really going to follow the eliminating amino acid theory or is there another theory out there that may be um, better um, for estimating um, what the requirements of the cow are? And so this is one place. Um, models, of course, have been used a lot to predict limiting amino acids. Um, and one of the things we always need to keep track of, and this is true even for the NRC models and the energy models that are out there, is that um, all models really, uh, no model can represent all that there is to metabolism and physiology of a cow, but they can actually make some really good useful predictions. And so knowing what the limitations of the model are that you're using and understanding what conditions you can use it under and what conditions under it fails can be really important here. So the fourth strategy for feeding was looking at um, proportions of rumen undegradable protein and rumen degradable protein. Um, in general, more rumen undegradable protein means less nitrogen in urine. So rumen undegradable protein, you would expect um, that either the cow would metabolize it or um, a portion of, and or, or a portion of that is actually going to end up as not digestible in the feces. Um, and so this, this plot is a plot that was um, done from some data that we had um, with uh, looking at um, proportions of rumen degradable protein in diet and where uh, that rumen degradable protein actually ended up um, in feces, urine, and milk. And so this is kind of similar to that original bar graph I showed you a few slides ago. And basically what it shows you as rumen degradability increases, urinary nitrogen excretion also increases. And correspondingly, fecal nitrogen actually decreases as you increase rumen degradable protein, the relative proportion of rumen degradable protein. 
So that just means when feces decreases, that means that the proportion of runum undegradable protein is increasing, and so the nitrogen is passing out into the undegradable portion. But the interesting thing is milk urea, uh, sorry, milk nitrogen, actually at, um, once you reach about a 10 to 15% rumen degradable protein level, milk nitrogen actually starts to decrease. And so milk nitrogen doesn't seem to be real responsive to rumen degradable protein basically and as long as it gets enough to satisfy the microbes to provide enough microbial protein and then it hits a certain level where milk uh, nitrogen actually starts to decrease. And so um, what I want to show you now is this is, so I work with the model Molly uh, quite a bit. And one of the things um, when I was doing a lot of this um, dairy modeling and looking at different ways to manipulate nitrogen so that we could actually predict where nitrogen was going to go, whether it was in urine or manure or out in milk, um, what I did is I did a huge literature review of probably about um, 19 different diets from um, things that have been published in the literature. And these diets, there was about 15 to 20% um, crude protein content on these diets. That was the range. And these in these papers, they predicted or they measured um, the amount of nitrogen in urine. They measured the amount of nitrogen in milk, and they measured the amount of nitrogen in feces. So this is just a plot of all of these um, different publications that were in um, the literature. And so basically what I want to show you is there's a lot of variability in results from studies. And of course, this is probably possibly due to cows in different stages of lactation, due to different environmental conditions, you know, different areas of the country, different feeds, all these kinds of things, different amounts of rumen degradable versus rumen undegradable protein. But I just wanted to show you an overview of where nitrogen actually ends up. And so if you look here, you can see that um, the nitrogen in milk is actually pretty flat. And the nitrogen content in feces, if you were actually to draw, look at a regression line, it looks like it's also pretty flat. In fact, the only relationship that actually held between um, nitrogen intake and nitrogen that ended up in urine was actually, uh, sorry, <laughs> the only relationship that actually occurred was between nitrogen intake and nitrogen that ended up in urine. And that ended up being the only significant relationship. And it had actually, even though you see lots of peaks and values, the R squared was about 70%. So it could, could account for about 70% of the variation. But you can see still there's quite a bit of variation across all of these um, different experiments. The next thing I did then, because I wanted to come up with a way to actually partition where nitrogen was going between these three areas, urine, milk, or feces, I looked at, okay, well, what if we can predict or we can know what rumen undegradable protein content and rumen degradable protein content is of that particular diet um, crude protein. So again, we have across the horizontal axis, I have a graph for rumen degradable protein and I have a graph for rumen undegradable protein. And both of these increase as you move across, um, move around to the, to the right-hand side. And they are also both showing where the nitrogen is partitioned according to those um, 19 diets from the literature. We have nitrogen in urine, nitrogen in milk, and nitrogen in feces. And what was interesting here is pretty much all of these are flat. In other words, both rumen degradable protein and rumen undegradable protein didn't really seem to impact where um, the nitrogen was going according to um, these the results from these papers. And again, um, there's a lot of variability here, and that's probably part of the reason why we couldn't really see 
uh, relationship between uh, rumen degradable or rumen undegradable. Um, of course, rumen degradable and rumen undegradable protein are a percentage of crude protein, so they're both kind of interdependent. So these are not two um, they're not two independent um, sets of data. They are related to each other. Um, in fact, the only relationship that this actually showed was there was a significant relationship between rumen degradable protein and feces, which I'm not really sure why that exists. So this was basically no help whatsoever to be able to figure out how to build some more equations into the model to get this to predict. But I thought I'd show it to you to show you um, that uh, rumen undegradable and rumen degradable protein may not necessarily work for being able to predict partitioning between um, nitrogen and urine feces and milk. Um, why it could possibly work and what I was thinking was um, you could, if you, if rumen undegradable and rumen degradable protein actually influence that, it would help you partition where nitrogen goes. Um, so you could, if you were going to use this nitrogen um, in manure as a fertilizer, you could pick a less volatile form. Um, and of course, typically rumen degradable protein is used because thinking that rumen degradable protein is mostly available to, to microbes. Therefore, you could possibly ma maximize microbial growth, and that would be that essentially metabolize nitrogen. And um, that then you could track the amount of that that actually ends up in urine. Um, it doesn't look like it's actually going to work, though. Um, again, um, being able to look at that partitioning, um, organic nitrogen, of course, is not usually available to plants. So um, it would have been nice to be able to do this, but um, it doesn't look like the, from doing it from literature data is really possible. Um, so that means that it's really experimentally difficult to repeat um, results um, looking at the partitioning of nitrogen from the basis of rumen undegradable and rumen degradable protein, and probably we're going to have to look at other ways to actually control volatilization of nitrogen if we want to use um, manure as fertilizer. So that's basically um, what I wanted to tell you about managing excretion. Um, in summary, uh, I want to get across the points that nutrient balance is possible, but it's very likely that it's not really sustainable. Of course, cows almost are almost never um, in nutrient balance. They're either in negative energy balance or they're in positive energy balance. Um, but on a whole farm basis, especially if your farm involves um, raising crops that get refed back to cows and you're using manure as fertilizer, you can see that what's going to end up happening is you're going, you're not going to be able to maximize yields. You're not going to be able to pull all of the nitrogen into the crop and be able to either refeed it or export that crop off. And so while you may be able to do it for three to five years, uh, long term, it just may not be a sustainable approach. Um, again, nutrient input guidelines can't be one size fits all. We need to consider variability, especially when feeding a pen. Um, and that's variability, again, is one of the things not only on the individual cow level where you're looking at individual cows within a pen or looking at variability caused by management of the dairy. Um, each dairy really needs to be considered separately to figure out where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are as far as being able to track nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and control it within the waste stream. Um, flexibility and nutrient output is needed. So how are you actually going to handle the nutrients once they end up in a waste stream? Um, are you going to use the manure as fertilizer and supplement with a commercial fertilizer, or are you going to just consider that it's just a way to get rid of the 
lagoon water and you're going to spread what you have and hope it works out in the wash. Um, that, again, along with what's important to the dairy and how the dairy is managed, all those kinds of things need to be considered when considering how to actually manage the waste stream. And then, of course, probably finally, everybody wants to find those critical control points in the waste stream that really um, control or can be major influences on where the nitrogen goes or where the phosphorus goes or where the potassium goes. But because of the huge variability that we have and just not being able to make those measurements, it makes it really difficult to set those critical control points. And so with that, um, that's pretty much the end of my talk. And thank you for listening so much. And I guess if there's any questions, it's about time for that. So Heidi has joined us now for the live question and answer period. Um, but before we get to that, I want to take care of a few housekeeping details. Um, we want to talk about the next month, we will be joined by Dr. Adam Locke from the Department of Animal Science at Michigan State University. Um, back by popular demand, he spoke to us in 2016. And due to his mastery of the topic, Adam will talk about supplemental facts, the myth and reality. As with this webinar, there will be two opportunities to join, the 9 a.m. Um, and the 6 p.m. Both of those are Eastern Daylight Time. I want to remind you that we are also running a beef webinar series. Our next webinar will be next week with Dr. Um, Danny Fox, and he's going to be joining us talking about growing animals. So make sure that you join that because it may be of interest to you dairy people as well. Um, we'll be joined on September 12th by Jonas Sartori, and Nikolai DiLorenzo will join us October 10th to round out that series. We have partners in this venture, um, AMTS, and we are joined in the morning by Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations Italia. She hosts it for the Italian-speaking audience. Um, Paula Torillo joins us in the afternoon, and Tom Long from Hemingway. We want to thank our generous sponsors who, are, who help us do this. Um, here in the U.S., we're especially grateful to Ajinomoto Heartland. They are superior nutrition to amino acids, makers of Agipro L, and Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of cattle feed ingredients that optimize dairy health. They are our gold sponsors. Our silver sponsors are Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA, DHA, Omega-3s, and Prequel with Omega-6s, Cumberland Valley Analytical Services, Kemen, featuring USA Lysine, Dairy One Forge Laboratory, RD Life Sciences, and AB Vista. Our bronze sponsors are Nino Max, Purdue Agribusiness, Jeffo, Quality Liquid Feeds, Adaseo, Origination Inc., and Novita, makers of Nova Meal. I'm going to open up the, the floor for questions. I have some in my comment box and in my chat window, if I can. Um, and so I will, I will go ahead and handle those as we come and see if Elena has any questions from the European perspective. First, we're going to do a little bit of mic checking. Um, Heidi, can you speak? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I hope other people can, too. <laughs> and Elena, can you speak? Yes, can you hear me? Yes. Could you hear Heidi? Yes, yes, I could. All right, good. It seems like we're all working now. Um, I, guess I will lead with a couple questions that I have had, if I can manage to see that chat window. Um, here we go. 
I have sympathy for our people when we change our um, our program platform and they're wondering where everything went. It's giving me greater sympathy because it's tough when, when you have to learn something new. Who moved my cheese? Um, so the first question I have is from Steve in Idaho, and he asks, is there still a stigma that phosphorus needs to be added by for better reproduction? How is this affecting mass balance? Um, can you speak to that, Heidi? And Elena, I'm going to mute you while she gives her answer. Okay. So, um, in at least in our area, most of the concern with reproduction is actually on um, energy and not necessarily phosphorus. That's what we've been seeing in a lot of our experiments and a lot of our on-farm work. So um, if you're actually feeding phosphorus to increase reproduction or increase um, pregnancy, yes, it would increase phosphorus that ends up in the waste stream. Okay. Let's see. The next question I have is going to be, um, this is a comment. So in New York State, there's a lot of drag hose incorporation of manure, um, and it's limiting the loss from volatilization, the nitrogen loss from volatilization. Is that being advocated in California and across other parts of the U.S., do you know? What was the, um, what, the dry something or other that you said? Um, it's drag hose incorporation of the manure. So oh, okay. Yeah. So it's in the way that they apply it. Yes. Yeah. Um, of course, applications, the, the methods of application are really important. But unfortunately, most of the volatilization actually occurs before, <laughs> before you actually apply it. And so incorporating, incorporating the liquid directly into the soil, of course, is really important to trap what you have. But when I'm, most of the volatilization I'm talking about actually occurs before that. Okay. I'm going to give Elena. Do you have any questions or comments from your experience there, Lily? Yes. Now I'm talking about the volatilization of uh, nitrogen. Uh, do you have any suggestion about an acidificator or acidifier to use for manure treatment? Um, no, and it hasn't been widely used actually in California because. In acidifying, you're actually going to have to add probably a mineral or, you know, an acidifier generally is a mineral that you're, that's a charged particle potentially that would be added. And so if you're going to do acidification to trap the nitrogen, you've got to consider that if the addition of those minerals will actually increase the salt content in the manure that you're actually going to apply to the land. And so this has been a trade-off that hasn't really been explored a whole lot, and that has stopped people from going the acidification route. So it's a strategy that you don't use at all there? As far as I know, no one is really using that. Um, I think it's being used somewhat in the lagoons, but it would require a lot of acid to be applied to a lagoon to get that to work. Okay. And I have another question. I mean, first of all, a comment probably related to the strategy um, to, I mean, that evaluate the rumen digestible protein and rumen undigestible protein. Uh, I think that the you have, I mean, you have to look also related to the rumen digestible proteins 
uh, you have to look also to the carbohydrate fermentability. What do you think? Oh yes, definitely. Um, okay. If if the rumen if the diet's not balanced with both carbohydrate available carbohydrate and rumen degradable protein to maximize microbial production, um, either direction can um, you know can result in more more nitrogen actually. Um, being excreted, and that if you look in the guidelines that it gave you for mercury and nitrogen, it actually um, included, uh, you know, uh, guidelines also on what's going on with the carbohydrate relative to what numbers you have for mercury and nitrogen. Okay. Thank you, Elena. Do you have any more questions? Uh, one more. <laughs> okay. Do you want to go ahead since everything's working yeah. so well? <laughs> now, since we are in summertime, right, and uh, we are soaking cows uh, all over Italy pretty much, most of all in these days, um, this is going to impact, of course, the amount of manure that the farm produces. So, uh, in this case, uh, do you um, have a priority in order, you know, either uh, ca uh, the cow cooling, to prioritize cow cooling, or uh, the manure uh, amount? Um, I think definitely we've got to prioritize, prioritize uh, cow cooling. Um, okay. You know, in California right now, um, we are in our summer also, and uh, particularly in this area of the state, it's extremely hot. Um, we've been having... We haven't had um, excessive heat, like above 110 degrees, and I'm sorry, I don't know what the conversion is to Celsius for that, but um, we've been over 100 degrees up to around 105 degrees for over 30 consecutive days. So, um, and it doesn't cool down a whole lot at night. We get maybe a 20-degree drop at night, which is not real great for the cows. And so if you don't cool the cows, cow comfort is a big issue. You're going to lose milk, and again, Maximizing milk production is a great way to get rid of nitrogen. And so um, in that model, actually, that we did of the whole of an existing whole dairy, cow cooling was one of the contributors to the waste stream. And um, I, that's, I, don't think, I don't think you can dairy if you, if you can't keep the cows comfortable. No, of course. <laughs> no, and probably uh, there is a, I mean, you can, uh, of course, um, uh, timing, you know, the, soak, uh, yeah, the soaking period or... Uh, yeah, use a strategy in order to soak the cows in a certain uh, time of the day, that um, more during the day than during the night, for example. Do you? Yes. Yes, all those things are very important. Okay. Thank you. Th thank you, Elena. I'll um, ask a few questions here. So, um, worked on, again, in New York State with mass balance, found that the price changes in fertilizer and feed drove mass farm level nutrient balance response on the farm. Do you see the same with your farms? Was any economic work done in conjunction with your farm level nutrient balance work? Um, not that I know of. Most of the um, economic part of it, it's been mostly, at least from my perspective, it's been mostly seeing what happens with the cost of um, commercial fertilizers versus using manure. Um, and so... That's and and of course all of our farms have to file nutrient management plans and so those are kinds of the main drivers of being able to drive farm balance. Okay, thank you. Um, so with regards to the slide that you had um, or the discussion that dry lot was better than a free stall, um, have you quantified management tactics to amount to to the amount of loss? 
for example, how much does daily lap grooming or feed bunk flushing contribute to the change in nitrogen loss from volatilization for leaching? Or, and did you measure leaching? Um, no. <laughs> okay. We haven't done um, that much detail. At least I'm not aware of it. Um, we've mostly just looked at um, emissions of nitrogen in the two relative systems. Okay. And I think I have one final question, unless Elena has something. Um, with regards, oh, I have two actually. Did you, have you done any studies or comparison of limiting emissions and um, excretions of grazing versus um, conventional feeding dairies? Um, no. In California, we do have some grazing dairies and um, but as far as I know, that would be on the emissions side, you'd probably be more in the Frank Mitloner <laughs> area. And as far as I know, I don't believe he's done a comparison of grazing systems versus um, concentrated feeding dairies. It would be interesting because you have all of the dynamics that go into that with, um, with regards to efficiencies and, and production. So yeah. That's, that's, yeah. You know, in California, one of the limitations is our land is extremely valuable. So when we talk about, you know, at least down here in the Central Valley, when we talk about putting animals out on pasture, they're actually out on marginal rangeland. And so it's a little difficult to do some of these measurements in areas where it's right. pretty steep and rocky and, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's clearly not being used for, for crop production. No, right, exactly. <laughs> I have a, a question from Umberto Francesca. Um, he, his question is about the impact of this, the trend in dairying of the mega farm that would pose on the environment, and if the government is going to impose new regulations on them, if, if you're aware of any. So that, that's sort of a big question, I think. It is huge. And, you know, of course, in the United States, the political climate really drives what's going on. And um, our political climate it has changed. And there's, we don't really know what's going to happen. Um, California sets its own regulations. The, the federal government sets regulations for the entire United States. California sets regulations that are usually much more restrictive than what the United States does. And so that in part, whether that's going to merge together or whether it's California is going to get more restrictive, at this point, I don't think anybody really knows. Right, right. I think we have to wait an election cycle or two to find that out. Yeah, um, and there's because, some rumors going around that some restrictions um, from the federal government is going to say that states cannot set restrictions on their own, which means California would now have to go back to the federal government restrictions, which would actually be much looser than what we have right now. That's interesting. Yeah, and <laughs> that's just, that's, I don't know if that's going to actually happen or not, but... That's one of the things that's out there. Yeah. Um, question. I attended a chief conference last week, actually, at which um, the people from Fiscalini spoke, and they talked about their use of digester and how they use that to, to handle the whey produced in the cheese production and also the just the from the farm. And I was recalling your chart that, that said that a lot of the nutrients are in the the liquid portion and that cycle back through for flushing, et cetera. In some of your discussion of mass balance and application of the manure to the fields, would that change considerably if there were more 
digesters used, and is there an increase in digesters since you did that study? Um, yes, probably on both. <laughs> um, right now, there are two uh, grant programs for dairies in California. One of them is um, kind of limited, but it's um, encouraging dairies to actually put in digesters. And the other one is for encouraging dairies to use other manure handling technologies to decrease nutrients in their waste stream. Um, or increase recapture of nutrients within their waste stream. And so we've had, we had a period of time where we knew that digesters were great for um, using nutrients in manure, but the problem was uh, we had a diesel rule coming down and air, the air boards were saying that the equipment that's used to generate power from digesters um, was not would not meet the air requirement, you know, for clean air in California. And so we had two committees or groups of committees in California that were actually handling, handing down regulations or ideas that were completely conflicting. <laughs> now that has been mitigated, and um, so they are back to encouraging uh, digesters. Okay, interesting. I wonder, um, is that a California-based encouragement? Because it seems like a lot of alternative energy usage um, programs went away with, with the change in administrations for us. Yes, both of those are California-based. Okay. Um, unless Elena has some more questions, I think that we have exhausted the questions here in our, our morning webinar. Heidi, you'll join us again this afternoon. Elena, I'm going to unmute you and see. Hi, Elena. Did you have any more um, questions or considerations? No, I'm okay. Thank you. Thank you. And and we appreciate you joining and also giving um, giving an opportunity to to um, speak about it from from the European perspective because I know that you guys are doing maybe more with measuring these these. Um, emissions, is that correct? Uh, it depends on the area, but yes, we yeah. are having more and more restrictions actually, so it's going to be a, a big deal in the future. Yeah, I think all the, um, some of the stuff that Heidi talked about, in that it's variable and it's all reliant upon management, that seems like that's going to be something that we'll really need to tighten up because the regulations will eventually happen if they haven't already. Yeah. Paula, do you have questions to start? off? Yes. I, I have one. The first question is from Carlos. Which are the strategies to buy feed to minimize nutrient excess? Um, really big question. <laughs> yes. um, and I can pretty much just speak to experience in California. Um, what we do here is our forages are primarily grown on farm um, affiliated with the dairy. So that's our manure actually gets used as fertilizer on the forage ground because you can't apply manure to human edible crops. Um, and so what our dairies end up buying then is corn, in other words, concentrates, soybean meal, canola meal, all of those other supplements that get imported by rail car from other areas, but primarily the forages are what's actually raised um, on farm. 
and that's because of the limitations. Um, that may change here, um, but that's because of the limitations of cost of land, water availability, and um, our, our farmland is very valuable because we can grow um, things like almonds and fruits and other things like that that actually have a higher value than cow feed. So we feed a lot of byproducts. Okay. Okay. Paula, do you want to keep going or, or shall I ask some? I have one more. Okay, this go is, ahead. This is from Daniel. Uh, compost barns are effective systems to retain more nitrogen? Is that a question? Yes. Okay. Sorry. Um, yes, compost composting, um, if you're doing it correctly, it involves um, taking down and uh, introducing oxygen because you're looking for an oxygen-based fermentation to, to heat up the pile and kill um, any microbes really in the, in the pile. So um, composting, if you're doing it in the true composting form, if you're not just piling up um, solids or manure and, and just letting it sit there, if you're actually incorporating oxygen into it, you actually increase volatilization with composting, and in fact, uh, there's been limitations, at least in California, on being able to compost because it does increase volatilization, and so our air boards have been trying to discourage composting. Um, Heidi, I think, I think Paula's question was also directed towards composting barns, um, where the cows are actually housed on compost bedded packs. Oh, so um, you mean, in other words, using manure as um, bedding, manure salad? Yes, yes, but I think, you know, there's been a little bit of talk more about compost-based barns. It's a little different than using uh, Paula. Can you address that better? Yes, I, uh, with compost barns, I mean uh, like a dry lot, but with a roof, and then um, they work the soil to compost the, the bed, the manure and everything excreted on the soil. Yes, that's um, the diagram that I showed that compared a freestyle flush dairy to a dry lot dairy. Um, that's correct. The dry lots, or what you're calling a compost, what I believe you're calling a compost barn, actually is, on average, much better at sequestering nitrogen and keeping the nitrogen from being volatilized into the environment. That's correct. Does that does that answer the question? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think so. Uh, compost bedded pack barn um, is is another term for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have a question from Tom Long, and he says, to continuously use the model, how frequently should we measure outputs of the farm, and where are critical points of measurement? So that's the problem with the model, is that the, um, the standard deviations on the original estimates that we built the model on were extremely large. And so that kind of precludes using the model as to actually pick where those con critical control points are with being able to um, control volatilization and also manage excretion. So I don't think the model really can be used to select out those critical control points. Um, and what was the other part of the question? I'm sorry. 
Um, let's see. How frequently should we measure the outputs of the farm? Oh, okay. Um, so that was part of the point of the model also is that you have to be very careful when measuring the outputs of the farm because even even if you want to know what the nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium content of the lagoon water is that you're going to use for application, the first part of the lagoon that you pump out to go and apply it, that composition is going to be different from the last part of the lagoon that you pump out to apply because the lagoon has stratification within it that there's different microbial um, microbial metabolism going on throughout the lagoon and the composition at the top part of the lagoon is going to be very different from the composition at the bottom lagoon and including the sludge at the very bottom of the lagoon. So things like doing um, mixing the water in the lagoon before it gets applied um, or even measuring, which is now possible with some of these NIR um, machines that they have that can do real-time nitrogen um, estimations at least, but actually measuring the manure or the lagoon water as it's applied can actually maybe be one of the best places to find out exactly what you're applying to the land. Okay, thanks. Um, so I have a question, another question from Tom Long. Um, and he's asking, is the manure model actively built into ration models like CNCPS? Heidi, I know you've worked a little bit with the CNCPS and um, maybe you can address that. I know we have um, a whole excretion side to the program or yeah. incorporated into the predictions. So the manure model I printed that I, I showed you guys is actually not been even published. So, um, and that's, it's based on um, numbers that we got from measurements on a real dairy. Um, so I haven't actually contributed to, uh, you know, in, in the Molly Mall that I work with, I'm not really, really trusting how it's partitioning out the nitrogen myself. I'm not as familiar with how um, the Cornell model actually um, separates nitrogen into urine, feces, and milk. And so I can't really comment on, um, you know, validating that or, or even explain how that part of it works. So, sorry. <laughs> uh, I, I actually think I can get some information to Tom about that because okay. that Car Caroline worked a lot in that side of it when oh, great. it was okay. being developed. All right. Um, I have a question on um, a, a couple questions in watching the the video. On the slide that's on the forage input and in relation to yield removals, that was dated um, 2001 with some of the updates in the following slides up to like 2003. Has there been analysis of what, you know, what sort of changes have we experienced in crop yields that would change those numbers? Because it would seem to me over the past 15 years or so, there's been some considerable breeding that would have increased, increased the, the yields per acre, whereas the, the uh, manure production is fairly static in terms of what, what would be put on. What, what do you have to say to address that? Yeah, and so, um, yeah, obviously yields have increased quite a bit. Um, there's a tremendous amount of precision crop technologies that have come into play in the last 15 years, including things like being able to minimize the amount of water that you apply 
on crops um, through irrigation, using different irrigation techniques, aerating the soil, um, you know, all sorts of things, being able to actually do real-time measurements of um, nitrogen in a crop as it's harvested. I mean, just huge amounts of being able to really get down to almost, because of GPS mapping fields and getting down to almost nitrogen yields on a one square meter area of a field. So, I mean, the, the technology since um, that data has been examined on multiple different dairies has really increased. Probably what has not changed <laughs> is um, our, our technology as far as uh, are we just trying to get rid of the, the lagoon water and use it as another irrigation and kind of make up the difference with other commercial fertilizers or are we actually trying to manipulate the, the manure output so that we can actually uh, minimize the amount of fertilizer that we pull in from other sources? And that, that's the part that hasn't really changed. Okay. Um, Paula has some questions, so I'll let her go ahead with some of them. Yes. Uh, another question from Carlos. Could we reduce the nitrogen excreted in feces by using tannins? Oh, by using tannins. Um, yes. It would reduce it somewhat. I don't know if it would be a significant enough reduction. I'm not, I do know that tannins, yes, it does reduce it, but I'm not exactly sure of how much reduction you can get um, in using tannins without, so I don't know if you're talking about feeding higher tannin feeds or just adding tannins um, to the um, to the, the amount that's excreted. Um, if you're feeding it, you're going to run into limitations on being able to actually start limiting the nutrients that the cow can actually absorb and use. Um, so I'm not I can't really give you a number, but yes, it should decrease it. Great. Uh, another question from uh, Leonardo: Could the use of limiting amino acids be an effective method to improve feed efficiency? knowing that we are also increasing excreted nutrients? Okay, I'm a little confused by the question because it seems that if you are increasing the excretion of nutrients, you're actually decreasing feed efficiency. Um, can you clarify a little bit more? I will try, but he's trying to know if the use of limiting amino acids could be an effective method to improve feed efficiency. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure how that would be used. Okay. I'm not sure. I, I think I just maybe don't understand the question. Maybe. I, I will try to yeah. clarify it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> uh, okay, I have another one from Julio. What happens to the nitrogen? after using manure in a biodigester? Um, that's a really good question. And um, we still end up with, of um, course, in a biodigester, the gas is actually trapped within the, um, the covered lagoon. And what you're actually mostly extracting is being able to burn off, um, you know, produce energy from the gas that's produced off of that digester, digest, digester. <laughs> and um, most of what's being burned is actually not nitrogen. So I imagine because it's covered and because you're not really burning nitrogen, that actually is um, 
that's actually still within the manure. And if anything, it's going to concentrate it because you are going to be burning off carbon substances. Great. And the last one. When you using liquid manure spread on the soil, did you analyze the impact on other minerals such as sodium and sulfate and the possible leaching? Um, some of the farm advisors have done that, and I believe those um, particular data on those is actually in that report that I mentioned. But no, I did not. Um, of course, I didn't include it in that kind of detail in this presentation. But if you would like more information on that, I believe it is in that report. Okay, thanks. I, I will ask Marian the, the the report if we can have it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, a question from Tom Long. Any way to redesign the lagoons to minimize variability due to stratification while hopefully not consuming more energy? Hmm. Um, not that I can think of. Um, that's one of those million-dollar questions. If I could figure it out, I'd probably quit my job and go into business for myself. <laughs> um, but doing things like um, lagoon additives, um, increasing purple sulfur bacteria, which can help with um, sequestering sulfur, um, things like uh, using the appropriate amount of mixing. So you don't want to mix too much to incorporate in a lot of oxygen because the idea of a lagoon is actually to increase an um, anaerobic fermentation, kind of like a big rumen. Um, and in part, that's what introduces the stratification. So maybe if the lagoon was mixed right before, um, you know, right before the water was pulled off to um, go to irrigation, uh, that doing something like that probably would help. And a lot of that lagoon water is actually used in flushing. And so through the flushing process, some of that is there's some mixing that's going to occur um, on a daily, more than a, within a day. It's probably going to be like five or six times, depending on how often the dairy actually flushes. Okay, thank you. I'm going to ask um, a couple of the questions from this morning and one that I did not. Um, sh uh, this was in regards to the leaching and dry lots. Did they check also for the local wells for nitrogen contamination? Um, at the time that that data was collected, um, we weren't really doing test wells. Since then, uh, test wells have become much more common. Um, regulatory agencies are actually pushing those. And one of the issues that we have in this area is just because you have nitrates or um, high salts in your test well doesn't necessarily mean it's from manure application because this particular area of California actually what used to be a large swamp. <laughs> um, and so because of that, um, through irrigation, building of the aqueduct and farming, um, waterways were built to control the water and keep um, California, this area of California, from being this big, big freshwater shallow lake. And but because for so many years, when we get uh, rain and the flood was cut, would come into that area. And I'm talking like pre 19, probably 1940s. Uh, the salt concentration in our soils is already pretty high. And so that's why I'm saying that um, it, it's, you know, 
the dairies do contribute, but we already had a problem even before we were doing, um, probably had a really bad problem before we were doing much farming or doing much uh, dairy farming. Okay, and, and for the benefit of the listeners tonight, this is a question that I asked earlier is um, in New York State, we're using drag hose incorporation of manure and that to limit loss of nitrogen. Is that being advocated in, in California? Yeah, they're um, advocating, well, it's direct incorporation yeah. below the soil surface, minimized volatilization. I don't know about drag hose specifically, but um, most places are, not everyone, of course, some people still spread it by just, um, you know, spraying it on top of the soil. But uh, most people are actually trying to incorporate it into the soil because that, again, reduces volatilization, like you know, and um, gives you a better efficiency. It reduces um, volatiles going off into the air. So, um, yeah, that that's always one of the better ways of doing that. And I think I think part of the reason um, here that they're using a lot of the drag hose is to decrease um, the compaction of the soil for us yeah. because it's, it's less weight going across the fields. Yeah, um, out here almost everyone is using no-till or low-till agriculture, um, where uh, corn is actually basically planted in the stubble. Yeah, so, I, I yeah. saw a lot more of that this year, actually, than, yeah. than I noted in previous years. Um, so this is a clarification of the question that Paula was asking earlier. In the slide that you showed two diets, one adding lysine, in the diet that added lysine, it is more efficient, but the nitrogen excretion is greater. Could you explain more about that? Do you want me to load the slide set so that you can... Yeah, that would that? be great. That would I think so. Let me check with Paula. Does that look right to you, Paula? Yes, I think this is the one. Okay, thank you. Okay, so this slide shows a, um, where lysine was eliminating amino acid, they added more lysine. And um, what, in theory, what this should do, if you can identify what the limiting amino acid is, in theory, that should increase. Um, your production and decrease your excretion so that um, so that you actually excrete less nitrogen um, or excrete more nitrogen in feces relative to the amount of nitrogen that you're excreting in urine. Because in the limiting amino acid theory, um, if you have an imbalance in amino acids, you are actually going to use more amino acids for um, you're going to deaminate them and you're going to actually that excess nitrogen then will go off as urea and be excreted which should increase the amount of nitrogen in urea and decrease the proportion of nitrogen excreted as feces does that make sense i hope so if you're talking about increasing efficiency of the animal it if you're trying to feed a more imbalanced diet, you'll actually be decreasing the efficiency of the animal, which would be like milk output relative or milk nitrogen output relative to milk nitrogen input. But if you're talking about efficiency as far as being able to put more nitrogen into manure relative to the nitrogen that goes out in urine, I still think that probably feeding a better balanced amino acid diet will still get you a 
a better profile of nitrogen um, that's excreted and possibly bottledized versus nitrogen that would be in, in, in organic forms that would stay in the soil for three to five years and then become available. Great. The Leo says it's okay. Okay. So you, you answered right. the question. Oh, okay, <laughs> good. Okay. Okay, good. Paula, do you have any more questions? No, I, I don't. Okay. Um, I also do not have more questions. So um, unless I get – oh, is um, are heavy metals a problem in the manure as well? This is from Tom Long. Any any mineral is basically a problem, and particularly in our herds, and I think across the United States, nutritionists have a tendency to really overfeed um, zinc, copper, and manganese because there have been shown some benefits to doing that. And I'm, when I mean overfeed, I mean overfeed relative to NRC requirements. Uh, and so, yes, that's going to increase their excretion, and you're going to end up with more of that in the manure that could be applied to the soil and cause more problems. Well, everybody should tune into the November um, webinar because Bill Weiss is going to talk about mineral recommendations. So maybe we can we can hone in on those in that webinar. Um, if no one else has any questions, I will thank you, Heidi, again. Um, this is the second time we've talked today. And I think other than me fumbling around for files, it seemed to go pretty well. Um, Paula says thank you. And I'm and um, re they really enjoyed the webinar down in Argentina. So, oh, great! Yeah, yeah, thank you everybody that joined. And by the way, you got much easier to hear after the initial panicky five seconds. <laughs> panicky, panicky on my end. It's it's always okay. tough when the person answering the questions can't be heard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tom Long says thank you very much. So I want to thank everybody for joining us. Um, make sure to check out the webinar with Danny Fox next week and um, come back and come to the nutritionist, oh gosh, September 12th, I believe is the date, with Adam Locke. And I will get this processed and recorded as soon as possible, but as always, there seems to be a bit of a lag time. Um, I, I think there's other things that I have to do this next month, so it's going to be a challenge. Heidi, thank you, and thank Thanks. you, Paula and Tom, and also Paula Allen is, who is our translator. She always does a great job. So thanks very much. Good, goodbye, everybody. <laughs>